Hey-ho, tutor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 10 of our podcast. Every episode, Jesse will read from Time's Riddle, the story project we're working on. And if you're listening to this, you're like us, and you love thinking about how history connects to the present day. So after the reading, uh, Gage and I are going to discuss some of the historical facts and the research that we found fascinating that went into today's chapter. At this point in our story, Philomena is coming to find Constance at Bedford House to reveal that her servant Alice says that it was Henry Howard, the Earl of Surrey, who wrote the mysterious letter. So, read on, Jesse. Chapter 10, Bedford House, in which Cecilia is Cleopatra and a martyr is named. The outsized, onion-like turban balanced on the head of a tiny manservant mesmerized Philomena. Swinging wide the door to Bedford House, he greeted her as if the royal Cecilia Vasa expected her. As she followed his billowing pantaloons and curly slippers, Philomena considered such garb was of the Ottoman Empire, not of the princess's native Sweden. She weaved through the house behind the servant, noting the unsightly disrepair of the place. It was no wonder the princess desired rooms at the Arundel Inn. A door opened to a grand hall, and Philomena curtsied low at the sight of the princess, who was wrapped in yards of white silk, draped with pearls, and holding a bronze snake. Her golden hair was hidden underneath a black horsetail wig. Arranged artfully around her, her ladies held flowing veils and stood in angular poses. And was that the margrave of Baden-Baden in a Roman-style helmet? In truth, it suited him. The servant who had led her in perched himself on a low stool and began kissing an enormous blue and green parrot. In a flash, it all made sense to Philomena. The fellow standing in front there was drawing this strange party, but Constance was not among them. Philomena dared not speak, to be answered by a room full of hushes and a frown from the princess. "'Here, here, Philomena,' hissed Constance at her elbow. "'Do you not like to pose?' Philomena asked. I stood as a nymph to her grace as Athena, but this adoration of Queen Cleopatra is not to my liking. I have news, Philomena said. Can we find a private corner? Constance led Philomena to an unoccupied chamber and pushed a bundle of clothes, two empty tankards, and a broken clock off a bench. She motioned to Philomena to take a seat. We can speak freely here. Philomena wasted no time, but began immediately. Constance, my old servant Alice, she remembered, it is so, she remembered the box, and she believes the letter written by Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey. Constance, he was a poet and a Catholic. It makes fine sense. That Henry Howard wrote the letter, that he possessed a relic he would not part with. It is possible, Constance agreed. Philomena said, something puzzles me, though. He was a Catholic. He might have wanted to keep the relic. But why would he not return it to Lady Isabel Stoner, if it was your family's by right? Oh, it was such a relic. I cannot blame him. No one of faith would give it up. I must tell you, I should not. Constance shook her head in amazement. That there can be any trace of such a thing is a miracle indeed. What do you speak of, Constance? A ring. One that belonged to the martyr, Thomas More, Constance said reverentially. What? Philomena asked, amazed. I cannot comprehend it. My family had a special ring. I never beheld it myself, but my mother described it to me many times. It was indeed Moore's signet ring, solid gold, emblazoned with a rooster, his crest. The rooster's eyes were two tiny rubies. 
On the inside was inscribed the motto, Souvent mais souviens, think of me often. Would you give up such a thing if it came into your possession, Philomena? It cannot be true. Sir Thomas More's ring? It is a tale hard to credit. When he was beheaded, I have heard it told, they put his head on a pike on London Bridge, and it was stolen. Philomena, my father was there. Indeed he was, as a lieutenant of the tower. He witnessed the death of the martyr. My mother told me. It broke his heart. He died when I was a tiny girl. But my mother loved the ring, and she loved the stories of Stoner Valor. I think that is why she married my father. He was much older. She told me how my father was determined. A man as great as Sir Thomas More could not be tossed into an unmarked crypt, his bones to mix with everyone else buried there at the tower, and his head left to rot on a pike. The thought disgusted my father. Your father knew the family? He knew them well. Sir Thomas, his daughters, and his wife? Sir Thomas More and his daughter Margaret were a close pair, and my father thought she would go mad with grieving, standing beneath the pike and wailing. He made a pact with her. In the dead of night, he would walk the bridge, halibut in hand, dressed in his lieutenant's garb, and as he passed the head, he would knock it from its place, and she, waiting in a barge below, would catch it. But on the night, the daughter's courage failed her, and my kinswoman, Lady Isabel Stoner, she took the post. I see courage runs in your stoner blood. I hope I may live up to it, Constance confided. And yet I find a bit of the grotesque there. The bloody head of the dear Sir Thomas More landing at Lady Isabel's feet? It is shocking. Lady Isabel had the will to do it. And that is all that may be said. Philomena spoke with awe. I do not know if I could. It must be she had a strong stomach. Catching the thing. And then hear this, Philomena. Lady Isabel took it home to Moore's daughter, Margaret, and together they pickled it. Jesu! They did, and Margaret gave my family the signet ring in thanks. How could she have parted with it? It must have pained her. She had so few things of her father's. The king took all, as he always did, yet she begged my family to take it. It was a charge, and my parents determined to honour it, but to no avail. It was stolen during the raids. I pray that through some twist of fate, Henry Howard saved it before it could be destroyed. Oh, that would indeed be wonderful. The letter speaks of more. Does it not lay out his circumstance? The injustice of the trial? Indeed. And the imprisonment? And the slicing of an innocent neck? Philomena agreed. Constance closed her eyes. The letter speaks of Sir Thomas More and his execution at the hands of King Henry. This has come before me. It is a dream. How much I would like to bring the relic back to Stoner. It would make amends somehow. Constance. Alice's mind is muddled, but there is another servant, Joan. She was there when Henry Howard was arrested. Surely he would have passed such a treasure on to someone for safekeeping. Maybe even Joan herself, though it seems unlikely. When shall we go and see this Joan? begged Constance. On the morrow, if it suits. I am in your debt, Philomena. Not so. I am in yours for these confidences. And I too wish to riddle it out. Philomena reached out her hand, and Constance squeezed it. On the morrow, I cannot wait. So we've seen Constance at the inn, but this is the first time Philomena has been to the court of Cecilia, and it is eye-popping. The servants and the courtiers at Cecilia's are in fancy dress, or as we in America would say, costumes. Cecilia's servants are dressed in these kind of outlandish costumes, and Philomena thinks about the Ottomans in this chapter, 
because there was actually a lot of contact between England and what was then termed the Ottoman Empire. And I was really surprised about that when we started researching this period. Being a Tudorphile, it's hard to remember that England was just not a big player in the world stage in the 15th and 16th century. It's not until the 19th century that the sun never set on the British Empire. Right. At the time our story takes place in 1565, the sun never set on the Ottoman Empire, right? <laughs> it included most of what is now Eastern Europe, most of North Africa, including Egypt, and most of what we now term the Middle East, Iraq, Iran, and Jordan. Its approximate population was over 25 million. And its ruler at this time was this glamorous uh, emperor, Suleiman the Magnificent. He was a Sunni Muslim sultan, and his court was based in what is now Istanbul. And poor little England only had three million people. (laughs) Suleiman expanded his empire through conquest, but unlike the European monarchs, he was not concerned with the religious belief of the people he conquered. It was more like the Roman Empire, you know, where people of other religions, I mean, that is other than his Sunni Muslim religion, they had to pay more taxes to practice their faith, but captured people weren't expected to convert. Um, They were enslaved, but they could work their way out of slavery. Suleiman styled himself as his hero, who was Alexander the Great. Yeah. And Suleiman's reign was roughly contemporaneous to the Tudor's reign. He took the throne in 1520, and he died in 1566. Henry VIII began the trading relationship with him, and it was carried on vigorously by Elizabeth. Yeah, and this trade relationship came across in such an interesting way. So it was one of the unexpected outcomes of Henry's break with the Pope. So when Henry set himself up as the head of the English church, the Pope banned trade between the loyally Catholic countries, such as Spain and France, and this rebel island of England. So Henry's trade possibilities shrank massively, right? And he saw, Henry saw the potential of trade with Suleiman and his massive empire as a way to make up what he had lost in European trade. The Pope threatened to excommunicate anyone who traded with the Muslims. But after Henry broke with Rome in 1533, he had nothing to lose, and neither did Elizabeth, who was never recognized by the Pope anyway. The Ottoman Empire at the time was wealthy and intriguing to the English. Yeah, Henry VIII was known to dress in Ottoman clothes at court. I mean, he would wear like silken Turkish robes um, and shoes, upturned shoes, you know, and they some of these things were probably sent to him by Suleiman. And we know that Elizabeth increased trade with the Ottoman Empire, but I wonder if Mary I put the brakes on it because of her relationship with Spain. Henry and Elizabeth, they had to trade with him. Right. Whereas Mary could have traded with the Spanish. With the Spanish. So I don't I don't know. It's thought that during Elizabeth's reign, thousands of English people traveled to the Ottoman Empire and many stayed there to live. I might have stayed too if I'd made that enormous journey all the way to the Ottoman Empire. I'd have been like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine coming back. It's interesting. And there was even a term for uh, for staying in the Ottoman Empire or taking on the attributes of the Ottoman Empire. It was called turning Turk. Elizabeth, she was definitely poking at the Spanish because she harvested the lead and tin from the Catholic monasteries. And then she traded that to the Ottomans. 
And then the Ottomans exported 250 tons of Moroccan sugar into London. And that was a result of the Anglo-Islamic alliance. I mean, it was bad for the teeth. And that's where it all started for the English and their choppers. Right, and it was 250 tons of sugar every year. Yes. <laughs> Dentistry aside, it, it seems like with all this religious craziness in Europe at the time, Elizabeth actually thought she had less to fear from trading with Islamic leaders than with Catholic leaders. We in the West are Tudor heads, and in Turkey they have something that sort of covers the same period of time as the Tudors that they call Ottomania. Yeah, I know, I love that. So there's actually this TV series called, in English, Magnificent Century, and it's about Suleiman, and it's sort of the Ottoman Tudors, it, it, and it's a mega hit in Turkey. So it takes place during Suleiman the Magnificent's reign. The show is very much like the Tudors, but it has no nudity because of the morality laws in Turkey. You know, I've watched Magnificent Century, and I'm not a prude. I'm fine with people taking their clothes off, but I actually like it better than the Tudors because personally, I just got tired of Showtime's like softcore porn in Tudor outfits. No, I get that. And even if the actors keep on their clothes in the Magnificent Century, it's still the same dress up soap opera, beautiful women fighting for the attention of the gorgeous sultan and lots of romance and smoldering looks. I mean, it's costume fun. Yeah, and there's a wonderful character who's the infamous Roxelana, a real person whose court name was Harem Sultana. And she rose actually from being a captured slave to being Suleiman's wife. So in the show, she's sort of an Anne Boleyn who usurps the sultan's first wife who's kind of Catherine of Aragon. So it's kind of a similar situation between these three people, between Suleiman, his old wife, and Roxalana. No, but very similarly, it makes me, there's a replica of the ring that Suleiman gives Roxalana in the TV show, and it's sold all over Turkey, even as an airport souvenir. There are $2 versions, and there's $10,000 versions. It's kind of like the Anne Boleyn bee necklace. Yeah, and, you know, of course I'm guessing that uh, the Magnificent Century is historically inaccurate, just like the Tudors was. I'm sure it's very inaccurate, but it probably doesn't bother you as much. because No, because I don't know so much know about much the period. About <laughs> but Ignorance is bliss when it comes to television. Yes. But it does make you hungry to read about Suleiman and Roxolana. Unfortunately, historians have much less actual documentation of what went on in the Sultan's harem because women were so isolated. They didn't interact with the ambassadors and other courtiers, and they did not write letters as women in the English court did. There's no inherited positions at Suleiman's court, and that's very different than in the British courts. There's the titles of families go back for generations, and Suleiman's court, it's kind of a meritocracy. Suleiman thought it was better to have people around him who maybe had been slaves because they wouldn't be loyal to their families and they wouldn't be loyal to the gods they believed in over him. The courtiers of Henry VIII, they have family castles, they have county seats that even by the time of Henry VIII, they've been in that county seat for generations. And so they do have competing loyalties and some are executed for what Henry considers 
the wrong choice. And one of the most famous of Henry's courtiers who's executed for his religion or for his religious beliefs is Sir Thomas More, and he makes a huge impact in this chapter of Time's Riddle. Thomas More is now a saint, but he was not actually canonized by the Pope until 1935. Yeah, and that surprised me, actually. I think of him so much in terms of being a religious martyr. I forget, of course, that he himself was never an ecclesiastic. He was a, a politician, you know, but he was a father and a husband, a humanist, an Oxford-educated lawyer, a member of parliament, a political satirist. When I read Utopia, I was shocked by how snarky it was. <laughs> it is very snarky. But you know, Thomas More had a sense of humor and he was proud of it. That's the thing. I think sometimes we think of these people as if, if they're sort of associated in our minds with, with religion, they, that they didn't have a sense of humor. And being they weren't saint. humanists. Right. But I mean, you know, Thomas, they were Renaissance people. They had the idea of, of humanism. And Thomas More was besties with, you know, the mega humanist Erasmus. And by all accounts, Thomas More was a really devoted father. He had four children from his first marriage and none from his second, but he also had two foster daughters. And he had his daughters educated with his son, which was very unusual. He really believed in the education of women. Even Erasmus said he was impressed by how successful More was in educating his daughters. I was surprised to learn that Utopia was actually not printed in England until 1557 way after Moore's death, and of course, after Henry VIII's death, too. He probably was afraid that Henry would take offense at it. What? <laughs> Henry take offense? <laughs> Shocking. No. Maybe he didn't want it widely circulated in England. No, I wouldn't either. I mean, Henry was so temperamental, you just never know what could go wrong. And Thomas More was trying to keep the king's favor. He did keep it for a, for a long time, but then Henry had him executed. But he served Henry VIII for almost 20 years before that. Yeah. I mean, his Thomas More's execution was part of this fallout from Henry's break with Rome, which was really had so many ripple effects. You know, like his trade with the Ottoman Empire was also an un, unseen consequence of, of this break with Rome. But until we started really researching the Tudor period, I was so confused about Henry's religious position. I assumed that when Henry made himself the head of the English church in the 1530s, he was effectively becoming a Protestant. But of course, that was not true at all. No, in fact, Henry, and I quote, reformed the English Catholic mm -hmm. church and he did away with some things Martin Luther objected to, such as the worship of relics, of course, the power of the monastic houses, and the authority of the Pope. And he also advocated lay people reading the Bible in English, but he held on to some of the most critical beliefs of the Catholic Church. And the, the Pope had always been kind of a superpower. He could tell kings what to do. So he was above kings in Europe. And actually, the, the monarchs in England had always chafed under that. They never liked to be told what to do. So it wasn't as if, you know, Henry was the first person with this idea. This idea had been in the works for a long time. After this massive break came with Rome, he did 
sort of try to help people figure out what exactly he stood for. Um, I mean, what exactly he was he was um, he was advocating in this moment. So he he put out a, a bunch of acts, right? So th- there was the act of the six articles, and in that he confirmed transubstantiation, which was the Catholic belief that the bread and wine of communion actually transform into the body and blood of Jesus. So that was very much against what the Protestants thought, right? Which that it was more sort of a commemoration of that, of the body and blood, not an actual transformation. And Henry VIII also upheld clerical celibacy, which the Protestants didn't. And he continued to hear mass in Latin. And these were all things which would have gone against Martin Luther's ideas. In terms of doctrine, England was a Catholic country when Henry died in 1547. It's just that no other country thought of them as Catholic. <laughs> no other country. Than <laughs> Henry is Pope and King. I mean, Thomas More was executed for treason in 1535 during this break from Rome. But again, I always, you know, I didn't kind of, I wasn't familiar with the real timeline. And I guess I presumed that More was executed immediately for not signing the Act of Supremacy, making Henry VIII the head of the English church over the Pope when it was first introduced in 1532. But actually, Moore's path to execution spanned years, and there were kind of many stages to his falling out of favor with the king. So in the early 1530s, he resisted Henry's annulment from Catherine of Aragon. So that was his first, the sort of first strike against him. And he was against Henry's reformation of the Catholic Church. So that was another strike. In 1532, he refused to sign the Act of Supremacy, and he resigned from his role as Henry's chancellor, but he wasn't imprisoned. But then, in 1533, he was, and I quote, ill, Ill. (laughs) and he missed Anne Boleyn's coronation. Oh boy. Which infuriated her, and she was a religious Reformer. Yes, she was. So they were already at odds with each other. And in 1534, he refused to sign the Act of Succession, which recognized Anne Boleyn as the true queen and declared Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon void. And the fact is, it, it was ridiculous to say the marriage never happened or it was void because it had lasted for you know more than 20 years. Catherine of Aragon knew very well that she had not consummated her marriage to Arthur. And I believe that her religion was so strong that if she swore to that, it was true. So Sir Thomas More had sort of gone down this path of resisting these changes that Henry wanted to make. And after he refused to take this oath of succession, it was kind of the last straw, which made Princess Elizabeth and any subsequent children of Anne's first in line to the English throne over Mary I, who was Catherine of Aragon's daughter. Even though Moore was no longer his chancellor, he wanted compliance. He wanted compliance from Sir Thomas More. Yes. And in the spring of 1535, the act of supremacy was presented to Moore again and again, and he refused to sign it. And on top of that, He refused to sign the act of succession and the oath, and it just all sealed his fate. He was tried for treason in July, and surprise, he was found guilty. I don't think I've read of a case where someone was tried for treason in this period and wasn't 
found guilty. But, you know, so Sir Thomas More was actually sentenced to be hung, drawn, and quartered because that was the penalty for treason. The king, such a kindly man, commuted his sentence to a nice, easy decapitation. But not a decapitation with a sword like Anne Boleyn got. Thomas More got the axe, and he was executed on Tower Hill on July 6th, 1535. So when someone's been executed for treason in this period, their decapitated head would be put on a pike on London Bridge and displayed to the public presumably to deter bad behavior, but this is the thing. How many people were Henry VIII's chancellors who wouldn't take the oath? I mean, it's a very small... But I think it also occurred with people who were executed for more common crimes, like stealing or murder. Common criminals would have been executed at Tyburn. They would not have been executed at the Tower or on Tower Hill. And in Moore's case, his daughter Margaret was given the decapitated body to bury at the chapel of St. Peter ad Vignicula. Where Anne Boleyn is also buried. Where Anne Boleyn is also buried. But Moore's head was put on a spike on Tower Bridge. Yeah, and it was taken, which again, by all accounts, wasn't that unusual. And the lore is that the head was taken by Margaret, that it was preserved or pickled, as Constance says, and that it was buried with her when she died. So in our story, Margaret had help from the stoners of from getting this head off the pike and into her arms. And you know, Margaret probably did need some help. It wasn't something one person could have done themselves. So maybe it was the stoners who helped her. We don't know. Well, the stoners were devoted to the old ways of the Catholic Church, and they were no doubt supporters of Sir Thomas More. And we know that in 1535, there were several members of the Stoner family at court and ready to help. Right. Gosh, this must have been such a traumatic event for people. I mean, they must, so many people must have been horrified by Thomas More's execution. And also the treatment of his remains. Obviously putting a traitor's head on a spike was a form of determent to the public, but it was also a way to shame the traitor and, and to really upset their family. I mean, can you imagine walking by your father, your husband, your son's dead head on London Bridge? From what I understand, burying a body without its head means that 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 person will have a hard time getting into heaven because they're incomplete. Trying to put that body back together again in some form was very important to loved ones. I think it still is. Yeah. And so they wanted to give a proper burial and that must have been part of the motivation for people stealing the heads off London Bridge. I think so. But I also am guessing there was a sort of gory souvenir thing going on. (laughs) You know, I think some people wanted to do the right thing by the head and maybe some people wanted to put this head in their head collection. Um, you know, so you could best your neighbor, your neighbor's head collection. I mean, I think that's true. People are so weird, and I'm sure some people did it for crazy reasons. And it's a dangerous thing to do, so maybe they liked the risk. Yeah. I don't know. I'm sure you would get in very big trouble for stealing a head off a pike. It would be interesting to know what the penalty would have been if someone was caught stealing a head off London Bridge. And if any of you listeners happen to be experts on head stealing, 
and know what that penalty would have been, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page. Yes, we would. And it was such a terrible end for a man like Sir Thomas More, who really was trying to live by his conscience. True. And so there's some debate about how Sir Thomas More dealt with those he saw as religious heretics. And certainly Hilary Mantel in Wolf Hall portrays him as a very violent and vindictive man. And that's her right. And, you know, what someone's real personality was like as opposed to what they wrote and what their position says about them, it's very difficult to know. But I think the evidence for that is debatable. Hilary Mantel wanted to challenge this preconceived idea we have of Sir Thomas More as a saint and a man for all seasons. And I think I think that showing all the different aspects of somebody's personality and, and the things that we know about them is great. And I think that's what uh, historical fiction is for. So there was one of Henry's favorites who fell out of favor, who was spared this final insult. And in case you're wondering, Anne Boleyn's head was not displayed on London Bridge. No, we were wondering about that. Of course, it's the first thing you think of when you know that people's heads were displayed on pikes. Was it, was, did Anne Boleyn suffer this fate? But she did not. So I guess that's one perk of being Henry's queen. You can lose your head by a sword, lucky you, but, and you can also keep it off a spike, <laughs> off a pike, right? <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> and in, in this chapter, we wanted to show the reverence young women who were Catholic, like Philomena and Constance, would have had for Sir Thomas More. As we said, he wasn't canonized until 1935, but his name was already sacred and honored. He was considered a martyr for the Catholic faith and a man whose life and death were considered an example of righteousness. Right. So something as personal as this ring which Constance is looking for that, you know, belonged to him would have had a value of, of of a, of a relic in, in Constance's eyes, and it would be worth a lot of trouble to find. And that is why Constance and Philomena will press on. Right, and follow and like us on the Tudor Time Machine Facebook page. Join our growing community of Tudor files. It's wonderful to see how many people have followed the page and how many people are, are out there. Um, and we love to hear from you. We post all kinds of fun articles and Tudor tidbits. And if you want to dive into some of the automania that we've talked about today, watch Magnificent Century. And please let us know what you think of the show on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, so see you soon. And remember to listen for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk.